You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part three of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We'll pause our reading at the end of Second Corinthians chapter 2, that's verse 17. Now Paul is continuing here from what I was talking about in the last episode where he had to explain to the Corinthians why he changed his plans. He had planned to come to them and as it turned out he decided to write to them and here in verse 12 again he talks uh, 12 and 13 about another uh, change. A door was opened by the Lord but his spirit wasn't at rest because he didn't find Titus so he moved on to Macedonia. And so it seems likely that what Paul was expecting in, in Troas was that he would meet Titus there and he would find out from Titus how the Corinthians had responded to the letter he had written to them. Um, but because uh, his he, he didn't meet Titus there, he couldn't get news of how the Corinthians had responded, his spirit was not at rest and so he didn't uh, stay in Troas, he didn't respond to the open door that God had given to preach the gospel. Now that's interesting isn't it? I mean uh, if you think about that, Paul uh, is an ordinary human like you and like me. I can say there have been times in my life when my heart has been heavy and preoccupied with things that uh, meant I was distracted from doing other good things. Things I could have done for God, but another issue, particularly when those are issues of betrayal or of um the, the bad behaviour of other Christians or of disappointment or discouragement or where there is a conflict situation, those things can weigh very heavily. It's reassuring to know that the Apostle Paul experienced that too. And it might seem sad to us that he wasn't able to, uh, to step through the open door that God had given him, that the Lord Jesus had given him to preach in Troas. Um, but of course the Lord is sovereign as well. Uh, and so uh, we know that God allowed this circumstance to happen with the Corinthians, perhaps so that we would also have this letter to be able to learn from. But in any case, Paul felt unable to preach in Troas, so uneasy was he. And so he left and went on to Macedonia. But, and here is the very big but in verse 14, he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Whether Paul was burdened in spirit, whether Paul was preaching freely with liberty, whether Paul was stepping through an open door for the gospel or moving on burdened to a different place, Paul was conscious that God in Christ always led him 
in triumphal procession. Now, this is one of those points, and I mentioned this in the first episode of the series, that as we read through 2 Corinthians, we need to be careful to tell where Paul is talking about himself as an apostle and where he's talking about Christians more broadly. And this is the first of those points. The ones who are led in triumphant procession, well, is that the apostles or is that all Christians? Now, I, I, I say that partly with 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in view. And there in chapter 4, Paul very clearly talks about the ministry of apostles specifically. And in verse 9, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And the imagery there that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 4 is of a, a, a procession of triumph like a, a Roman general might have had. It would have been familiar in the Roman world that when there was a great victory, that general would parade often into the city of Rome, leading his captives after him, putting on display those people who would then be executed, who had been leaders of the enemy. Um, and Paul is saying that he and the other apostles are like men sentenced to death, exhibited to the world, not by their enemy, but by God. Um, in their foolishness, he goes on to say, they're fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, but you are strong. We're held in honour, or you're held in honour, but we in disrepute. So in other words, he's saying that God has allowed them to look to others and to the world like weak people on display in a victory procession who have been conquered, but they haven't, of course. Now, if that's the image that Paul is continuing here in 2 Corinthians, then we might think again, Paul, God is, is uh, Paul is talking about the apostles. He's leading, God is leading them in Christ in triumphal procession. Um, but, but there's a, a, a different response that people will make. So it may be that Paul is not tying that to how he uses this image in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, but it's worth comparing those passages. It's worth seeing that um, Paul uh, is, is talking about um, using that same image from the Roman world and uh, uh, that this idea of the triumphal procession is in Paul's mind here in 2 Corinthians. God is leading us. Now, in this case, it seems, though, that the triumph is God's, that God is leading the apostles. But actually, if you tie that back to 1 Corinthians 4, the apostles are not the ones who get the glory in the triumphal procession. They are simply the servants of God. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians. He and all of the apostles, all those who had had an input into the life of, of the church in Corinth, were simply servants. It's God who gives the increase. So the apostles are not ones to be gloried in. They are not strong. They are weak. But in their weakness, God's strength and glory is seen. And I think it's a similar idea here. But here Paul envisages this, that they are led in this train and as they go, there is a, an aroma of Christ that arises from them. Those who are being saved, those who are Christians or who are amongst God's chosen ones who become Christians, they, they smell the smell of life. But those who are perishing, rejecting God, rejecting the gospel, smell death. This is the reality of the apostles' ministry. Some respond with joy and faith and some 
respond with hostility to attack and to persecute them because all they smell is death. The gospel does that. The gospel causes offence. It divides those who will trust in Jesus from those who won't. When you present Christ to people, there will be an offence. People do not want to be confronted with the reality of their sin and the reality that there is one who is Lord over them. Some will embrace that joyfully and gladly, confessing their sin and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Others will reject it and they will also reject the messenger. Now, if that is true of the apostles, I think in a lesser sense it is true of us, of every Christian. And Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Or as the footnote puts it, who is competent for these things? Who could possibly do this? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? But the reality is that no one is. And we'll see that Paul is not saying, just as he said in 1 Corinthians 4, the apostles are weak. And as he will say later on in 2 Corinthians about his own weakness, his competency his sufficiency is not in his own ability as a preacher. It's not in his strength or his power or his giftedness. May God save us, those who serve God, particularly those who are ministers of the gospel, from ever thinking that our sufficiency is in our ability, in our cleverness, in our eloquence, in our strength in our charm. No, he says, we are not like peddlers of God's word. Those peddlers who pretend that they are sufficient, who claim that they are strong. No, we are men of sincerity. We saw it in the last episode. Paul says he conducted himself with sincerity, godly sincerity and simplicity when he was with the Corinthians. As men of sincerity, they are commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that's an idea that will carry through chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. The nature of gospel ministry, an authentic gospel ministry of an apostle, but also of anyone else who is called to preach the Bible, to preach the gospel. It's a very simple definition. Commissioned by God. Well, the apostles could say that. I guess we need to be a little bit careful. I can't say, oh, God has commissioned me, so therefore I must preach, even if you think I'm no good at preaching or not gifted in that. But if I believe God has gifted and called me to preach, then in the sight of God, I must speak in Christ. That means I have to speak of Christ. It means I have to rely on Christ. It means I have to give the glory to Christ. It means I have to centre on Christ, be grounded in Christ. It grieves me. And let me say this. When I go to a church meeting or a Christian conference and I hear a speaker who speaks for 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes and they seldom mention the name of Jesus or they throw in the name of Jesus, but the shape of their message is not shaped around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the foundation for their message is not the word of God and uh, in the scriptures. And the centre of their message is not Jesus. Sometimes it feels like they're preaching self-help wrapped up with Christian terminology. It's not the gospel. It's not Christ. It's not what we're called to preach. 
if you are given the opportunity to speak, to preach, if you are called to that, then please centre on Jesus. Speak before God in Christ. Let's read 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered to us by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We'll pause there after verse 3 of Second Corinthians chapter 3. Now, it was a practice in the early church to have letters of commendation. Uh, that's still practiced by some churches today. But you can imagine in the ancient world, it was even more important that when uh, one Christian went to another place, they might carry with them a letter from uh, that the church they were part of to commend them to the Christians in another place as a genuine believer. That's a very good thing. It's a wise thing. It certainly was necessary in the early church. I think it's a wise thing today as well. Paul is not against that practice. But what he does say to the Corinthians is we don't exactly need a letter of recommendation, do we? We don't have to commend ourselves to you because you know us. You know the, the work that God did in you and, uh, and for you through us. You know how we, Paul is saying effectively, how we brought the gospel to you and how God worked in your life in response to that letter. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written by the Spirit of God. I love that again. Paul's not claiming that he wrote the letter. <laughs> He's not claiming that he did the work or made the difference in their lives. He doesn't say, you know what we did for you. He says, you know what the Spirit of God did in you. You are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul has a sincere love for them and they know Paul. They have seen his relationship. That should mean that they are ready to receive his rebuke and his challenge because they know his love for them, his commitment to them. Again, it's a nice picture, isn't it, of Christian ministry? That we love people so well, we stick with them, we encourage them so much. We, they know that we are for them in Christ. And therefore, when they have to speak hard words or we have to speak hard words to them, they can receive those from us. But the language that Paul uses here, of course, makes a contrast. He says, not written on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. And that's setting up for what Paul is about to say in the next verses. This is the language of covenant. The tablets of stone, of course, were the tablets of the old covenant where God wrote the Ten Commandments and gave those tablets of stone to Moses, the foundation for God's law to Israel, written by God's own hand on tablets of stone, whereas the rest of the law was dictated by God to Moses, who then wrote it down. Well, just as God wrote then on tablets of stone, now God is writing on human hearts, not writing with ink, but with the Spirit of God. This is new covenant language. So let's read the rest of 2 Corinthians 3 from verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, 
not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the minister of ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We'll end our reading there at the end of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, that's verse 18. Now the background to much of what Paul is saying here about Moses is found in the book of Exodus, particularly in Exodus 34. So if you're not familiar with that, you might want to pause and go and read that to understand the background. But basically what Paul is contrasting here is the old covenant and the new covenant. And notice the reason he's doing this again in verse 4 and verse 5. He wants to be absolutely clear that he's not claiming that he is sufficient or competent to transform people's lives. Anyone who preaches the gospel, any minister of the gospel, any servant of God must be clear about this. That you, that I have absolutely no competency to change the heart of a person. All that I can do is to try and faithfully present Christ, to faithfully preach the gospel, to faithfully open up and explain the word of God, the scriptures. That much I can do. But the transformation of a heart is not something I could ever hope to do or would ever dare to think that I could do. That is a work of the spirit of God alone. The response that people make to God's truth as it is preached is a work of the Spirit of God. Now, the, the word must be preached. Paul is a minister of the new covenant. Again, he is an apostle, and I think that speaks in a special way about apostles because they were preaching the gospel that Christ had entrusted to them. But in a sense, it's also true of every minister today, every person who preaches the word of God. Every person who teaches others, not just those who are pastors or ministers of churches, but also those who, who serve in youth groups and Sunday schools and uh, all sorts of other ministries. And in another sense, even as we share the gospel with our friends and our neighbours and our family in conversations, you don't have to be a preacher to be a servant, a minister of the new covenant. But Paul is particularly thinking of preaching here. 
And, and he says that we have confidence in the power of this message to transform, but not because of us, not in ourselves. No, we are made com com competent, he says in verse 6, to be ministers of a new covenant. And that new covenant is not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills. If you read in Romans, how Paul talks about the law in the first few chapters of Romans, particularly chapter 3, he explains that the law shows us our sin. When we look at it, even those Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, and certainly the whole of the law, we must see that we are a sinner. We fall short of God's perfect standard. We stand under God's judgment. That's why the law also gave Israel sacrifices as a way of approaching a holy God to seek his forgiveness. Well, the law kills, the letter kills. It shows us our sin and it declares the sentence of death upon us. But the Spirit gives life. The new covenant is greater than the old. You can also read about that in, in Hebrews where the writer says that the old was like a shadow of what was to come, but Christ is the substance. Or in Colossians, Paul says something similar. Now, the ministry of death was carved in letters on stone, but it was glorious. <laughs> but please don't, don't mistake this. Paul is not saying that the law was bad. The law was very good. It was good in doing what God intended it to do. As he describes it in Galatians, it was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to prepare us for Jesus, to show us our need of Christ, our need of his forgiveness, of his death for us. The law was good. The law is holy. The law upholds and reveals the standard of God's holiness. And so the law is glorious. When Moses received it on the mountain, his face shone. He reflected something of the glory of God, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face because the Israelites couldn't bear to look on it. Now that law was glorious, but it was brought to an end. It was only for a time. The law was not the permanent way for God's people to know and to love him. The standard of the law, the character of God is unchanging. The standard of right and wrong does not change. And you'll see that in Paul's teachings. He upholds the same standard of right and wrong, of sin and of, of righteousness that the Old Testament law does. But the, the, the law would come to an end as the way to respond to God in worship. There are no more sacrifices today, no more need for them, because Christ made his one sacrifice for our sins forever. We do not worship God according to the old way of the letter. Paul talks about this in Romans, but the new way of the Spirit. You see that in Romans 8. And the Spirit leads us to fulfil the standard of the law. Again, Romans 8 and Galatians 5 make that clear. So Paul is not against the law. He's simply saying that the law was given as the way to worship God, the way to serve God for a time. But the ministry of the Spirit has even greater glory. It's not the one that brings death and condemnation. It brings righteousness. The Spirit makes us right with God's. What once had glory has come to have no glory, verse 10. 
because the glory surpasses it. The glory of the new covenant is much greater to make us the children of God, to make us right with God once and for all. Even those faithful people who died under the old covenant are only saved and made right with God through the, the gospel, through the Lord Jesus, through his death and through the work of the Spirit. So we can be bold because we have this hope. What is permanent has much more glory. The new covenant is permanent. It's not temporary. God will not replace it with something even better. No, this covenant is permanent. And so we're not like Moses. We don't have to veil our faces. And then Paul digresses slightly and says that when, when the Jewish people who have not accepted Christ read the old covenant, the veil remains unlifted. They cannot see the glory of Christ. They don't get the full significance of it. They can't see that it was fulfilled in him. It's only through Christ that the veil is taken away. So when Moses is read, there is a veil over the hearts of the Israelites who had rejected Jesus. But when someone turns to the Lord, when a person, when he turns to the Lord, God removes the veil. The spirit of the God of the Lord brings freedom. I've heard that verse misquoted a number of times. Second uh, Corinthians three, verse 17. The spirit of the Lord gives freedom by people who want to say, then there are no constraints. You know, if anybody tells you you have to be orderly in your worship, well, they're not following the spirit. The spirit sets us free to just be jubilant and perhaps to fall down on the ground laughing or speak in other languages without translation. If you if you think that, then go and read what Paul said to the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 14. There he says, God is a God of order and everything done in the church must be done in an orderly way. The freedom that the spirit brings is not a freedom to indulge ourselves or to behave uh, like fools or like animals, but a freedom to see Jesus. A freedom to gaze with an unveiled face on the glory of the Lord, verse 18. And we'll see as we get into the next episode in chapter 4 that um, it is as the gospel is preached that we see Jesus. So don't think that the Spirit does this somehow through a, a vision or a revelation. Uh, it is through the gospel. As the word of God is preached, Jesus is presented to people and as the Spirit of God takes away the veil and they gaze on Jesus and they see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that's what Paul will say in chapter 4, then they see him and they are transformed into the image of Jesus. Now the first step of that of course is when someone first hears and understands the gospel and the Spirit of God makes them alive in Christ as they put their faith in him. But that's also what happens to us as Christians, transformed from one degree of glory to another. At one level, that one degree to another might simply mean from the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the new for the Jewish people who become believers in Jesus. But there's also something true in us as Christians, that the more we gaze on Jesus, the more like him we become. The more we read the word of God and see Jesus, the more we hear preaching that lifts Jesus high, that presents us to him in his beauty and his holiness, his majesty and his glory. The more we look at Jesus, 
the more the Spirit of God transforms our hearts into his likeness to become like him, to think like him, to feel like him, to choose like him, to be prepared even, as Paul has said in chapter 1, to suffer with him. This is what the Spirit of God does. This is the new covenant reality. The Spirit of God makes his home in our lives. The one who we saw in chapter 2 we are sealed with. The one who is the guarantee who is in us uh, of God's uh, salvation. Uh, rather, sorry, chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. The one who uh, has anointed us. He has anointed us and sealed us and lives in us in order to present Christ to us and to change us into the likeness of Jesus.